The Cozy Robot Show. I'm Mike McCarg. Welcome to The Cozy Robot Show, a program about empathetic skepticism. We're learning to get to know our feelings and understand the feelings of other people and uh, understand our world more critically, learning critical thinking skills and information literacy and the kinds of things we need to know to make it in the world today. And uh, if you haven't already noticed, it's just my face and just my voice. Grace and Victory have the night off. So I will be answering your questions tonight. And I'm so excited to be here live in front of an internet audience. Uh, You can be uh, watching right now on YouTube, on Periscope, on Twitch, on Facebook Live. Uh, and of course, we're going to be available as a replay, as always, on demand on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on YouTube, on Instagram TV. People watch all over. You know, most people um, listen still on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, but it is fun watching more and more people show up to watch the show in video format, which actually is a really good point. If you haven't done that before, um, we would love for you to be a part of the program as we record it. That's how people ask questions as the show is recorded, which I'll be answering some questions live tonight. Uh, of course, you know, you can also submit questions uh, via social media. <clears throat> and of course, uh, our first questions tonight are going to come from the Cozy Robots Discord community. What is that? That is our private members-only community for people who support the Cozy Robot Show. And uh, those people get a little extra access in how we plan the program. And uh, literally any amount helps us do that. So you can go to CozyRobots.com to learn how you could be a part of that. And we don't just take your questions there. It's a whole community. We have a lot of fun together. We have a book club. We read games. Uh, we read games. We read books. And we play games. Good to see so many folks in the chat uh, tonight. So I can see some interesting questions already coming in in the chat. As always, the Cozy Robots are exceptionally well-read folks. So we'll see if I can even keep up with your questions. One other thing before we get started, this is really important. You may be tuning in for our special book episode tonight. Well, since Grace and Victory aren't here, we're going to make the book episode next week. So if you are if you send in a book question, uh, those haven't got thrown away, we'll cover those next week. It also gives you another week if you want to send in a book question or questions about literature or, or however Grace phrased that on social media. We will take those questions next week. So this week, we're going to handle kind of a like a potpourri episode. And it's just me uh, on the show tonight. Um we're just going to do the easy thing, which is answering uh, a variety of questions about what's going on in the world today and in our lives. So what do you say? That's enough announcements and enough preamble. Let's just get started. So we will begin uh, with a question from, um, I need to zoom in my screen here, my uh, 42-year-old eyes can't quite make out the question. On the teleprompter. Okay. The question is from Leash on Discord who says, can anxiety or depression be overcome or healed? Our brains are malleable. So can the positive thinking retrain our brains and bodies to not react in the ways they do with anxiety and depression? What a fantastic and timely question. Um, anxiety and depression are always issues for people. They're always challenges that we face. But here at this particular moment in history, 
with this whole pandemic thing. We have more people than I think at any time in modern history, perhaps ever in human history, more people have experienced social isolation. And social isolation is very hard for social mammals like human beings. And we understand from research that risks for chronic anxiety and depression triple from social uh, isolation, and that those risks can persist for almost 10 years after the isolation ends. So, Leash, when you ask this question, I'm just so moved with how many people could be watching right now or listening right now who might really struggle with anxiety and depression. You know, me personally, I have dealt with depression a lot in my life. Anxiety is newer to me. I didn't have a lot of anxiety growing up or even as a young adult. It's not until I started to interrupt some coping behaviors that I got to know anxiety. And um, it's a great question that literally books and books and books and books have been written about. Uh, Entire shows have been made, not just episodes, but series about anxiety and depression. Um, And so I want to do two things. The first thing I want to do is say, yes, absolutely, we can. uh, You could use the word retrain ourselves, I guess, uh, to have different patterns around feelings of anxiety or depression. And the fact that there are some treatments and mitigations available for anxiety, anxi- including anxiety disorders and depression, including clinical depression, in no way minimizes the very real difficulties and struggles that people with anxiety and depression face. And there's a reason. There's so many different interventions, behavioral interventions and therapeutic interventions for anxiety and depression. Not every technique works for every person. And some people have tried basically everything clinicians can throw their way and still find what? They have difficulties with anxiety and with depression. So I kind of have to, if we're going to answer such a serious mental health question about challenges so many people face, it's important me Important for me to start out by saying we can do our best as people, but ultimately we're going to have to be patient with ourselves and with our bodies because sometimes anxiety and or depression come from really deep places with us. Things associated with early childhood development, it can even be associated with genetic or hereditary factors. Uh, So, Anxiety, as I understand it today, is a warning light. I got that term from my friend, uh, the Dr. Hillary McBride. And uh, she told me and that uh, anxiety is basically like the check engine light in your car. It doesn't really tell you anything other than something is wrong, which is funny because it's a feeling that when you become aware of makes you feel it more. Right? The last thing someone who's feeling anxious wants to hear is something is wrong with me. So in that way, anxiety can kind of be self-perpetuating. It can be self-intensifying. And um, anxiety is a feeling our bodies give us often when we've been socialized against expressing some other feeling. Now, we have uh, core feelings in a, a model called AEDP, Accelerated Experiential Dynamic Psychotherapy, pioneered by the researcher and clinician Diana Fosha and further uh 
incremented and, and developed by folks like Hillary Jacob Hindle or uh, Dr. Ron Frederick. And um, this uh, brain imaging informed and, and, and brain anatomy informed of therapy uh, posits that we have feelings and feelings have jobs. And we're all born with the capacity to feel feelings, feel emotions called affects in the model. And if for some reason we get negative reinforcement from our family systems or our social communities, when we express a feeling, our bodies learn to block that feeling so that what? So that we don't experience social rejection. And that can get really complex. And so we can have a feeling like anger or sadness or sexual arousal that we feel ashamed about on some internal level. We've got an internalized shame about expressing that feeling. And then what? Our bodies let us feel anxious instead. It's not a good feeling. And so we seek all kind of coping mechanisms or defensive affects in order to not feel anxious. Now, depression is a little bit different. There is a situational depression. That's where we feel very down or very low or even feel numb in response to extreme grief or regular grief, honestly, or extreme levels of ongoing stress. That would be situational depression, meaning there's a situation in my life where depression is an appropriate and temporary response to that situation. Or we can have clinical depression, and clinical depression is this kind of ongoing long-term depression, which is often based on neurochemistry and does not have any identifiable situational or environmental uh, source or origin. Okay, well, then what do we do about that? Well, here's why this stuff is complicated. Depression can be something that is appropriate to medicate, like with medicine. Or depression, or what we think is depression, isn't actually depression, but it's coming from the cycle of numbing we're using to escape our own feelings. And how do you know the difference? Well, a bunch of important self-discovery work, often best done in conjunction with a therapist. Same thing with anxiety. You know, anxiety, uh, you know, I thought I had really, really bad anxiety for a while, and it turned out I'm sensitive to caffeine in the afternoons. <laughs> I was a, a morning caffeine drinker, and then I started, I, I liked the taste of coffee. I started drinking a lot of coffee in the afternoon, and my heart would pound, and I would just feel, oh my gosh, so nervous. And it turned out, I wasn't actually experiencing emotional anxiety. I was experiencing a physiological response to caffeine. All that to say, this stuff is complicated. So there's kind of two ways of thinking, both in terms of anxiety and depression, about ways that we can um, have a therapeutic intervention. One is kind of top down and the other is bottom up. Those terms come from the brain. We think of the top of the brain as the neocortex, that's kind of the rational, analytical part of the brain. And then the bottom of the brain would be like the brain stem, uh, the reptilian brain, it's often called, uh, as well as kind of the emotional centers of the brain. And when we go top down, we use an approach like cognitive behavioral therapy, where we use our thoughts to guide our emotional responses. And that can work pretty well. But for people that have what? 
PTSD or significant trauma. Uh, often we find that the dividends on the work done in CBT are temporary or not very effective. And then schools of thought like AEDP come into play where we start with learning to fully process our emotions to escape kind of the feeders that lead to chronic anxiety and depression. Both of these things, again, are done best with the support of mental health professionals. But what if you don't have access to a therapist? Well, books you can start with. Information alone doesn't really help us do anything with feelings. But if the information helps us, what? Navigate new practices in life. That can be really effective. So I haven't read this book yet. It just happens to be on uh, my desk because I'm about to read it. Uh, But I've heard a lot of good things about it. It's called Unwinding Anxiety. And uh, this is by a a medical doctor and PhD researcher. Uh, The endorsements are straight fire. (laughs) And uh, and it it purports to be, um, you know, a science-informed model for dealing with anxiety. I have not read it yet. Uh, Another book you can check out is It's Not Always Depression by Hilary Jacob Pendle. Another great book is uh, Living Life Like You Mean It by Dr. Ron Frederick. And I dare say, for both anxiety and depression, an additional resource that I think is pretty good is You're a Miracle and a Pain in the Ass by Mike McCarg, which will be coming out in paperback uh, May 18th. So my book, my second book, will be available at a price lower than ever before. It's not an ad, my goodness, but it is a pretty good book, a good resource for people working through anxiety and depression. And if you're, you know, maybe between therapists. You're going to seek out a therapist soon. One thing I love to do is kind of do my homework before I go see a therapist by reading books on whatever matter I might be dealing with so that I get a better return on my time because therapists are expensive. And I don't know about you, but (laughs) often affording mental health care is past my budget. So I like to use books to support that process and get some cost efficiencies out of uh, my time and therapy. Okay. What a great question, Leash. Thank you so much. Next, Our next question comes from Electric Ned, also on the Cozy Robots Discord. And the question says, heart rate is a pretty solid way to measure energy expenditure when caused by physical effort. But does elevated heart rate from other causes, anxiety, nervous disorders, drugs, also cause energy expenditure? For example, does a person using recreational drugs that cause heart rate to increase burn more calories? This is a fantastic question and one that I've had myself. Uh, largely, this is, you all, I know, didn't plan this, but it's funny. I mentioned a moment ago that um, I thought I had issues with anxiety a while back because I had elevated heart rate in the afternoons. It turned out to be caffeine. And then I thought, well, maybe this is good. Perhaps I'm just burning more calories while sitting at my desk. Well, as you have pointed out in your question, heart rate in elevated heart rate in conjunction with physical activity, is really good for us. Uh, Experts tell us that we should be looking for at least 20 minutes a day, uh, preferably 25 minutes a day of elevated heart rate each day, pending any uh, medical condition that prevents that, in order to get heart health and heart benefits. It's good for our fitness. It's good for our bodies to move. Uh, And it is also true that if you're anxious or nervous or taking a drug, that Uh, causes your heart rate to increase, that does marginally increase 
the calories that you burn in that moment, but not very much and at some cost. An elevated heart rate without a corresponding increase in physical activity is actually a health warning sign. That's a biometric that we should pay attention to and probably talk to a doctor about uh, as soon as possible. That's why, uh, you know, People who like take recreational drugs really should talk to their doctor, uh, you know, in a harm reduction model. You should make sure that you're in good cardiac health before you take any recreational drugs, which by definition are going to be unsupervised. That can be a health risk. We also know that periods of stress, nervous disorders, and anxiety do increase risks for heart attack and stroke. So it's not good for our bodies to have an elevated heart rate without the corresponding increase in physical effort or activity. Uh, so watch out for that. You know, I, I've gotten warnings before um, on my watch that my heart rate was uh, dangerously elevated. Uh, if you remember, for those of you who have watched the show for a while, actually, I've been following my work since before the Cozy Robot show began, I used to be in, more involved in public media. I had multiple programs. I was part of an, a, another uh, media partnership with a friend of mine, and um, I, I enjoyed that period of my life a great deal. And I started to have problems with heart disease. And what do you know? I found that by wearing a device that could monitor my heart rate over time, that I was getting warnings regularly, multiple times a week, about my heart rate when I was going about doing my work, sitting in meetings, getting ready to go on stage at events, all these times, a little tap on the wrist. Your heart rate has been elevated for more than an hour, but you're not moving your body. You should talk to a doctor. And I did talk to my doctor. And my doctor recommended what? That I make lifestyle changes to protect my health. That's part of the reason we do the Cozy Robot Show now. And it's a, a different format than the programs I used to do because we've tried to create something that what? Is very low stress for me. Which, by the way, Gosh, not only thank you to the team that makes the Cozy Robot Show happen, but thank you to all of you Cozy Robots who stuck around through that transition and to all the new folks who've come along and have helped us create supportive, slower, less activating media. It's been great for my health. And I thank you quite literally from the bottom of my heart. And Electric Ned, yes, you know, Elevated heart rate while moving your body is good. Watch out for elevated heart rate in other circumstances. Uh, chronic anxiety and nervous disorders are bad for your body. Okay, Carissa on Discord asks, what is love and how do you know you feel it? Is it even a feeling? Background, if you doubt you love someone, what are you actually questioning and looking for? Wow. Wow, what a good question. Um, you know, as we kind of grow as people, I grew up as uh, a man in the southeastern United States. And culturally, the process of identifying my emotions uh, was not anything I was taught or anything I was encouraged to do. 
um, often we, we, we socialize men to push their feelings down, to ignore their feelings. Um, we're, we generally, as a, as a culture in the United States, don't support men showing sadness openly uh, or fear, for example. And um, I think that's true for everybody in most cultures. Some feeling that's normal and healthy t- for us to process because of our family systems, our social context, or our religious practice, or whatever, our relationship with our feelings got more complicated than it really should be. And I think love is absolutely one of those experiences. And what I've noticed as I've kind of grown as a person, I've started to learn to look inside myself, to get in touch with my feelings, and to connect with them. I've noticed that like what I talk about when I say the word love is like really different from what other people seem to be talking about when they talk about love, and not everybody. But love is one of those words like um, God that just everybody seems to have their own little spin on, their own little particular manifestation. Like when I say anger, I think we all have a lot more agreement on what it means to be angry than what it means when we say that we love someone or we are in love with someone or we doubt that we love someone. We make the word love do a lot of work. I'm not the first person to say that. That's a very well understood idea, but like I love my friends and that's true. And I love my children and that's true. And I love my wife and that's true. And I love my dog Ruby and that's true. But the word love there is very different in all those contexts. When we talk about love, what are we talking about? Enjoying companionship. Yeah, that's part of it. Having an affection for, yeah, that's part of it. Desiring intimacy with someone, that's certainly part of it. Uh, It can involve uh, erotic desire for someone. That's certainly true uh, with my wife, but not true with my dog, right? So, but love is the word I'm using in, in both of those contexts. And so, you know, I'm inferring from the question that when you say, you say background, if you doubt you love someone, you're kind of m- meaning more in that romantic sense and less the companionate sense. Um, and if you doubt you love someone, then you doubt you love them. There's, your feelings are never wrong. Your feelings give you information. But um, in my life, I have found over-identifying with purely the emotional parts of love in a long-term relationship to be somewhat problematic. Now, don't hear me wrong. I've been married 20 years, and I deeply, deeply love my wife. I experience strong feelings in her presence. Um, I'm sad when she's not around. You know, I've... I've actually, one thing I've enjoyed about these pandemic lockdowns, it's been a long time since I've gone to an airport and left my home for a long time. And I've enjoyed being around my wife so much. But um, our feelings are always right and they are something we curate, right? Like um, when we talk about emotional awareness, what we're not talking about is just letting our feelings kind of run wild. Um if I get angry, if I just kind of let my anger like get reinforced and reinforced and turn into a rage response, and then I became verbally or physically violent with people, well, my, 
my feeling of anger isn't wrong, but my action in response to the anger is wrong and one might even say unethical. So I cultivate anger. I allow my body to give me information by allowing me to feel angry, but I still maintain ownership of my agency. I still still take ownership for the things that I do in the world in response to that feeling. So I also know, based on science, that if I desire to be in relationship with someone, there are practices that I can take that will make me feel more love for that person. Number one, I know that physical contact, when uh, a lot, when I have it occur for more than 20 seconds, will help release an, a hormone called oxytocin into my bloodstream. Makes me feel warm and affectionate. So sometimes I'll walk up and I'll hug Jenny, and while I'm hugging her, I'll count to 25 or 35 or whatever. And sure enough, usually about 18 seconds in, I start to feel this warming in my body as oxytocin is released and I start to feel bonded to Jenny. I also know that research tells me that the person you spend the most time with is generally someone you are going to feel romantically and or sexually attracted to. So I just do a little work there to make sure that the person I spend the most time with is my partner, Jenny, because I want to continue to be attracted to her. I also know that the ratio of positive to negative experiences in any relationship, but especially a partnered relationship, are a predictor for relational satisfaction. So I keep a rough tally of what's going on in my home. And if Jenny and I have moments of tension, or we have disagreements, well, I start kind of marking those down in my mind. And then I try to cultivate and create positive moments in response. How many? Well, five to one is what experts tell us work best. Five positive interactions for every one negative is the relationships that report the highest levels of satisfaction. So if Jenny and I have a, a tough moment, I try to think of five ways that same day to have positive interactions. And this actually is not grand gestures. I'm not talking about, you know, big romance movie kind of scenes. It's small moments that add up. And, you know, you might think, well, gosh, well, I don't want to be the one creating all these positive interactions. But what I have found not just in my relationship with Jenny, but my relationships with my friends, is that when you think about how to create positive interactions in a relationship, that tends to return in kind, right? And when it doesn't, when there's people who uh, don't seem to care to put into that kind of energy in the relationship, well, that lets me know how much energy I want to invest in that relationship. Reciprocity is a value that's very important to me. So it, I think when you doubt you love someone, you're saying, is there reciprocity here? Am I being treated well? Is there a level of attraction here? And that last one, watch out for, because attraction can come and go as we age, have certainly gone through periods where biologically I have experienced more or less physical or sexual desire. Um, And I I mean, gosh, (laughs) so what? You know, we also, in the West especially, we tend to kind of over-sexualize relationships. 
Um, sex is very, very, very important to many people, and that's fine. That's an important part of relationships. But when we kind of reduce our romantic relationships down to sexuality being the primary metric, we often miss things. Um, so I try to take a robust and balanced look across a number of factors when determining, you know, how I feel and do I love someone. And again, uh, you know, there's a special kind of love that I have with Jenny. I'm a person who is monogamous by choice and joyfully so. Um, but I also think about the ways in which I love my friends well. I love my children well. Um, you know, I love people I care about well. If I'm going to love someone, I want to do a good job at that. And I want to be involved with people who uh, approach that with reciprocity. So, uh, Carissa, fantastic, fantastic question. Uh, thank you so much. And so this week, I'd like to tell you about a couple of great companies that help make this show possible. BetterHelp is an online counseling service that is the easiest most convenient way I know of to get mental health support. It's affordable, uh, and it lets you contact a licensed professional counselor in ways that are easy and convenient to you. So that means text messages, chat, phone calls, even video calls. It means that in this era where we're focused on social distancing, BetterHelp is already perfectly adapted. Over 1 million people have used BetterHelp to take charge of their mental health. And the licensed professional counselors there specialize in all sorts of issues that we face. Things like anxiety and depression, stress, relationships, sleeping, trauma, anger management, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, and self-esteem. My favorite thing about BetterHelp is the fact that they will find a licensed therapist for you. So when you go to betterhelp.com slash cozy robots and fill out a quick questionnaire, the professionals there will find a therapist for you. And if for any reason that therapist isn't a fit, guess what? They'll find you a new therapist. No questions asked. And best of all, you don't have to find a parking spot. You get to make a connection with your therapist from whatever environment is most comfortable for you. So you can get 10% off your first month service by visiting betterhelp.com cozy robots. I'd also like to tell you about NordVPN. You might not know this about me, but I actually got my career start in information technology and information security. I spent, gosh, almost two decades of my life going toe-to-toe with bad actors on the internet, trying to protect my data and the data of my clients. And I can tell you something, the internet is a wild place. And that means security is important. And NordVPN provides VPN services that can help make your internet connection more secure. NordVPN is fast. I've used it myself, and they've got over 5,000 servers in 59 countries that, in addition to securing and accelerating your internet access, can also unlock Netflix, and other regionally locked entertainment websites. And they're so confident in their service, they offer a 30-day money-back guarantee that comes with their also guarantee that there'll be no data logging and 24-7 customer support. 
It can connect up to six simultaneous devices across all the different operating systems that are out there today, like Windows, Mac OS, Linux, iOS, and Android. And they provide unlimited bandwidth as well as support for P2P file sharing. So for NordVPN's birthday, every purchase of a two-year plan will get you an additional month free and a surprise gift. I might just sign up myself to see what that surprise gift is. So you can get started by going to nordvpn.com slash cozyrobots and use code cozyrobots. That's right, nordvpn.com slash cozyrobots and use code cozyrobots. The Cozy Robot Show. All right, let's keep the questions going. Here's a question from... May, who said, I had a job in the before times working customer service at a bakery. A problem I ran into was that I, a white person, would frequently forget the faces of my customers as they worked their way through the line, especially if they were Asian. I feel terrible about it. I know it's likely caused by a lack of exposure to faces different from my own. I'm curious what you have to say about the science of face blindness and particularly its intersection with racial bias, and if you have any advice on overcoming it. May, I want to laud you twice. First is for asking a difficult question in an environment where you felt safe. And number two, for noticing something in your life that involved racial bias and thinking about ways to improve. That is the way we can make the world we live in better for everyone. I wish so deeply more people would engage in this process of seeing about how they live and move and exist in the world and how that impacts other people at different intersections of identity, including race, and ethnicity. And your question has touched on something really critical here. Our brains uh, learn to recognize faces very early in our lives. And statistically, most white people in America have relatively homogenous social networks. In fact, Pretty recent data told us a majority of white people's close friend group did not include any people who weren't white. And so that means when white babies are kind of in the crib stage, they're almost exclusively seeing white faces unless, you know, they're in a daycare or something like that. And that's a problem for how our brains identify and learn to identify facial features. You are correct that it is exposure to different facial structures and different uh, faces from different races that our brain learns to decipher cues from different population groups and cohort groups. And uh, in that case, the advice I have on overcoming it is more immersion, paying attention. Um, look at the kind of media you consume. Right, So if you want your brain to get better at recognizing uh, faces from people who are Asian, watch more media that includes more Asian people. Uh, and especially looking at media from what? Asia's a continent. It's a, it's, a, it's a very big place. And because of that, there are many different cultures and ethnicities in and around Asia. 
And so if you look at different media, TikTok is actually a place that you can start with this pretty well. Uh, just look at the relevant hashtags. Your brain will get exposed not only to, to understand like Asia. Now, this happens a lot. We think of Asia and we think of Africa, just like one place. But we don't do that with Europe. And we don't do that with North America, right? Have you ever noticed that difference? So uh, I understand the concept of your question. Uh, uh, your question, Asian, is probably uh, the right term to use there. But I'm saying, as you are kind of interrogating yourself and interrogating your biases, also think about, well, gosh, what more could I learn about the different countries and cultures on the continent of Asia? Right? That would be important. And then look at more faces, especially not just photographs, but video media, uh, uh, social media, um, that you can see more faces, hear more voices. That will help. That is separate from face blindness, the medical condition, which I suffer from. <laughs> so uh, there's a part of our brain called the fusiform gyrus that um, uh, there's a region in that that helps human brains recognize faces. Uh, it also helps us uh, not helps, but causes kind of false positives. If you've ever looked at like a tree or a cloud or something and seen a face, well, that's that region of your brain kind of turning on and identifying faces. It also recalls faces. And in my brain, for whatever reason, that part of the brain just doesn't work super well. And uh, I've been clinically assessed for face blindness and I have relatively severe face blindness. And so for me, gosh, almost everybody's face looks alike. Uh, I have been surprised before when my wife got her hair cut or got her hair colored that I no longer recognized her or when my children uh, will come out of the shower and they've got their hair in a towel. I can't tell my children apart. Um, and so face blindness there, <laughs> uh, I don't care how many faces you see, uh, you're not going to determine differences. Now, what does that mean? I am, I think, more acutely aware of and sensitive to people's overall style presentation, the things they wear, the jewelry they might wear, their hairstyle, their hair color. I recognize people from a combination of their voice, their mannerisms, the things they wear, and their hairline effectively. So if you take someone's hairline away, I can't recognize anybody. Um, and I'm not aware of any treatment for that. Um uh, but what I will say is, in my case, there there isn't uh, any kind of racial bias associated with that. I can't recognize, and I've always thought that just everybody just kind of looks the same. Just all people. I just, <laughs> it's not that. And I want to be clear here because I get uh, people ask me this a lot. It's not that I can't see someone's face. I can see their eyes. I can see their nose. I can see their mouth. But if I look at someone's face and then look away and try to picture their face, oh, I get nothing. Just. <laughs> It's kind of a uh, kind of a, a fuzzy mess. But if I like, if I picture Jenny, my wife, is probably the person I'm most familiar with in the world. You know, uh, I can immediately picture her hair, right? And I can immediately picture like the way she holds her hands and the way she moves her head and all those kind of things come to me very quickly. So those are two distinct things uh, where we have difficulty discerning individual identity. For people who are in racial or ethnic groups, we are less familiar with uh, from, you know, clinical face blindness. One of those uh, imminently treatable, so to speak, through effort. The other one 
uh, well, is uh, usually indicative of um, brain damage. All right. I have a note here in the live stream now to find a question from the live stream. So I'm going to scroll through right now and find someone's question. Um, and so many comments. Uh, <laughs> I think this one will be fun. Uh, so here, the question is coming from YouTube. And it says, um, canine habits. Can dogs think in the future? I have noticed that my dog plans certain activities in the future. Uh, moreover, he is a talker and communicates a lot. He uses different types of barks and sounds. How common is that? I love dog questions. I'm always going to be gravitated toward dog questions. And um, yeah, so what do we know about uh, dogs? Um, well, we know they don't really have any conception of the future or time in general. Um but dogs uh, do engage in very sophisticated um, conditioned response cycles. So uh, your dog knows what your dog wants, and your dog learns to associate desires with signals. So although dogs can't tell time, uh, dogs do know how long you've been gone by how much of your smell remains. They have incredibly sensitive olfactory senses. And um, so as you are gone for a while, kind of the half-life on molecules and dispersion of molecules in your home environment, your dog gets used to you returning around a certain smell level. And so then might like go to the door, might uh, have elevated activity. So you might, if you have a, a, a nanny cam or a security camera at your home, you might notice that 20 minutes before you get home, your dog goes to the door and you're like, wow, my dog is planning for my arrival. No, your dog has been trained that at about this smell level every day. My person comes home. They love it. So not future thinkers, but master, master manipulators. <laughs> dogs. dogs are incredible human trainers. And they have extremely expressive faces that can be vocally expressive. And your dog has very high social intelligence. You know, we think cognitively a dog is like equivalent to a two or three-year-old child. But in terms of social emotional intelligence, more comparable to a teenager who are, as you know, social masters. I wouldn't dare compare my social intelligence or awareness to an average teenager or, for that matter, an average dog. And so it is very common that your dog has learned the nuances of what actions your dog can take and what result it gets from you. Uh, dogs are really, really smart that way. Um, and then uh, we got another question here that says, well, do cats do that too? Not the same way cats are not social mammals. Naturally, cats are socially uh, isolated. They're, they, they're uh, solitary animals. and uh, But they are intelligent and they have a problem-solving intelligence. And cats certainly can be trained and can train people. Uh, Elizabeth says that my dog is learning to communicate using recordable buttons. And that is true. Dogs can learn a limited vocabulary uh, where they can tap buttons and get a result. So uh, all really, really good stuff. Another dog question here. Uh, this one from Kiara, who says, why does my dog lick me? He sometimes licks my lower legs or feet when he wants me to feed him or take him outside. But other times, he'll lick my legs for a long time for no reason. I've heard it's the way dogs give affection 
Is this true? Uh, it can be, yeah. Some some dog breeds are more mouthy. Remember, dogs have an exquisitely sensitive sense of smell. Also know that uh, they don't have thumbs or sponges, and so the way the they naturally groom themselves is with their tongues, and dogs are pack animals. They're social mammals, and they can groom each other. So you might be getting some grooming, and then also remember that dogs are big, big into conditioned response. You know, if they get a result from something that they want, they really pay attention. They try to do that again. So if you've noticed, like, dogs paw people. Some dogs paw people all the time. Well, uh, for her whole life, Ruby has pawed me, and then I've petted her, and Ruby likes being petted. So I don't know how much instinct she has to paw, but she's gotten a lot of reward for it. And so if your dog licks you and you pet your dog or just stay near your dog, your dog counts that as a reward and continues the behavior trying to get what they want. Uh, I get it. You know, if I uh, <laughs> if I have a friend that every time I come over uh, hands me cheese and crackers, I'm probably going to see that friend a lot. <laughs> so <laughs> it's not just dogs whose nervous systems uh, respond in that way. All right. Steve asks, uh, and I'll go ahead and warn you, this is a big departure from dog questions. This one uh, is a little, a little harder material. Steve asks, I have a friend that I have known uh, and been very close to for 40 plus years that has gone completely over the edge with QAnon. How do people fall for these off-the-wall conspiracy theories? Steve, you are not alone. QAnon is sweeping the United States, especially white America, but not only. And uh, at an examination of the surface levels of the facts, QAnon is utter baloney. It's just completely implausible. QAnon's core belief, and this is true, the belief, <laughs> I forget to be careful saying this is true. It's true that their core belief is that um, a ring of pedophiles is at the heart of the Democratic Party and the U.S. government. Um, and then from there, QAnon kind of expanded and asked, uh, you know, well, uh, I guess Donald Trump is here to fight those people. And that, that's how QAnon kind of became this cultural uh, signifier that one was a Donald Trump supporter and how Donald Trump has achieved such a mythic status among people who follow QAnon conspiracies. Even mentioning QAnon right now means that uh, I'm probably going to get some social media heat in the next few days. Some trolls could show up in the chat. I mean, this is, this is some really intense stuff. And uh, conspiracy theories have been around for a while. There's a car alarm that's been going off all day. I apologize if that's coming through on the recording or the live stream. Nothing I can do about it. Okay. It is very distracting, though. Uh, so, um, <laughs> very, very hard to have autism spectrum disorder and have a car alarm while you're trying to talk. Okay, I stopped. So, uh, QAnon um, is kind of like internet scale conspiracy theory. Conspiracy theories have been getting more and more in intense since the internet kind of came of being and QAnon is kind of like this ultimate conspiracy theory, this collection of conspiracy theories has also got attached to social identity and social belonging. And that is uh, 
Okay, Victory is telling me that you can't hear the car alarm. That's great. I could definitely hear it. <laughs> anyway, so um, this collection of conspiracy theories forms social identity. So if like the world keeps changing and you feel overwhelmed by those changes and um, you are kind of distrustful of media in the first place because that's something that's been culturally uh, conditioned in you by your family system and by your social community. Um, that's how people fall into conspiracy theories because it gives you a sense of belonging and a sense of moral superiority. Now, don't get me wrong. Conspiracy theories rattle around in all kinds of communities. Uh, the left, the political left in the United States is not in any way immune to conspiracy theories, but QAnon has become this like particularly virulent conspiracy theory and has driven some pretty intense um, action. You know, there, there's a lot of ties between QAnon and QAnon-affiliated organizations and the invasion of the Capitol on January 6th of 2021. So um, getting people out of things like QAnon is very, very difficult. Confronting conspiracy theories in general is very difficult. Uh, facts are not persuasive and, in fact, can deepen someone's uh, commitment to a given conspiracy theory. Facts are important kind of for observers. The curious, Q-curious is one thing I, I saw in an article today that was a really striking term. When you confront conspiracy theories with fact, it can slow their spread, but it in no way helps you kind of get people back out of conspiracy theory thinking. Experts tell us that if you're in a close relationship with someone who's in a conspiracy theory, the best way to start kind of unindoctrinating them is number one, actually offering them social support and friendship. And number two is asking a lot of questions, not even refuting what they say, just asking questions that continue to tease at and kind of pull apart the ball of yarn because ultimately these conspiracy theories aren't uh, self-consistent. They aren't plausible. They don't hold up to any degree of scrutiny. And so encouraging people into self-scrutiny through the simple act of asking questions can be effective. But we are talking about work that will take not hours, but weeks, months, or even years. So uh, Steve, no, you're not alone. I've lost many, many friends and family members to QAnon, and um, it's one of the things I'm kind of most concerned about uh, right now in history, which is saying a lot. Okay, another question here from CR says, do you think it's more difficult for people with autism to age gracefully as one gets older and experiences more aches and pains, physical and cognitive decline, not to mention the worry of uh, supportive family and friends dying. How do people with autism cope with aging compared to neurotypical people? And are there any strategies to counter any of these potential challenges? Uh, the DSM indicates that autism is a disorder that should be diagnosed with children, but uh, more and more adults are uh, seeking treatment or diagnosis for autism, and it's because of the cognitive decline that comes with aging. Um, it was very easy for me to mask very effectively my autism 
when I was younger. But as I got older and I had a motorcycle accident, the symptoms of my autism presentation have gotten more noticeable to others and to me. You know, I think if you, 10 years ago, that car alarm wouldn't have stopped me in my tracks in the middle of the show. But now uh, I, I couldn't continue as long as that stimulus was there. And uh, in terms of what we can do about that, everyone uh, experiences some changes in their cognition as they age. It's not actually true that we have a, an overall decline in cognitive function as we age. Some forms of cognitive intelligence actually increase all the way into our, our 70s, 80s, can even increase into our 90s. Our applied intelligence, uh, for example, can continue to increase. Uh, but how do we uh, mitigate as much as possible these other cognitive declines and um, experience less functional loss as we age? And the answer there is challenging ourselves, especially with new things. That can be especially hard for autistic people. Um, but the more we do things that aren't our normal pattern and our normal routine, kind of the more enriching it is for our brains, as long as we're not doing it to the point that we're giving ourselves kind of chronic stress or anxiety or trauma. Trauma is not good for our brains, but novelty is. Uh, occupational therapy can help. Um, you know, so things I do. Uh, I do arithmetic, even though I don't like doing arithmetic. Uh, I write with my left hand a lot, even though that's extremely difficult for me. And uh, I acquiesce when Jenny wants to try new things in life or meet new people, even though I don't really want to do that. Turns out it's really good for my brain. Um, I was getting really comfortable, by the way, in lockdown world. I was starting to think, I could do this from now on. Yeah, all right. And then we uh, we got our, our vaccines, which, by the way, everybody get your vaccines, please. It's, it is such a luxury in the United States that vaccines are so widely available. People around the world would be desperate for those vaccines. So do yourself, your culture, your society, and the world a favor and get a vaccine. I don't care which one. Uh, but once we got our vaccines, we don't see people again. And I've noticed a lot of changes in myself since we started seeing vaccinated people privately in our home again. My quality of sleep is improving. My concentration is improving. So it turns out, even though I was comfortable, kind of isolating, comfortable spending more time alone, my brain is showing immediate benefits from the novelty of seeing people again, right? So I'm withdrawn, kind of introverted, very shy, and it's still good for me to be around people. Not all the time. You know, you're not going to see me... Uh, <laughs> like at Coachella or whatever festivals happen again. But it is good for me to see people again. Occupational therapy, by the way, is simply um, a professional guiding you through how to do everyday tasks when you fail. And of all the interventions I've tried uh, related to autism, occupational therapy has actually been the most effective. Uh, not only learning to do some things that I struggle with, but also coming up with strategies that make things I struggle with unnecessarily more easy. So we can cultivate uh, neuroplasticity by seeking out new and novel things. And we can use things like occupational therapy and mitigation strategies to cause ourselves less struggle and less stress that is unnecessary, preserving our cognitive resources for those things that are 
more helpful to us? Okay, fantastic question. Thank you so much. And thank you, everyone, for joining us this week on the Cozy Robot Show. Don't forget, if you're watching on YouTube, you can like and subscribe to this channel. And wherever you're listening or watching, you can follow this podcast and get notifications when new episodes come out. And this program is made by the most talented and supportive team in the entire world. So I'd like to thank each and every Cozy Robot show. Oh, excuse me. Each and every Cozy Robot. You make the show possible. Our producers are Tanner Hearn, Victory Palmazano, and Greg Nordine. Our music was written and recorded by Madison McCarg and Macy McCarg. Production support by Amy Hill. Social media management by Grace Vaughn. Design by Sydney Smith. Motion graphic design by Landon Satterfield. Set design by Jesse Lane Interiors. And wardrobe stylist and craft services, Jenny McCarg. Thank you so much for joining us. I can't wait to talk to you again next week. Take care, friends. See you soon. The Cozy Robot Show.